Navigating the Storm, episode 14. Learn from others, but don't try to be them. Hi, I'm Anna Knight, a personal development coach on a mission to help women and non-binary people survive whatever life throws at them and come out on the other side happier, calmer, and more authentically them than ever. On this podcast, I chat to people about their life experiences, so I might ask them about their stories, what they've learned, the advice they have for people walking the same path. My guests aren't necessarily famous, although Kamala Harris is giving a lot of interviews recently, so who knows, but the main reason I'm here is to have real conversations with people about how they've navigated their lives. Today, I'm talking to two of my favourite women in the whole world, my big sister and my eldest niece. We'll be talking all about what it's like being a teenager and raising a teenager, the impacts of social media, and the qualities that we see and respect in the people in the world around us. I'm so proud to be part of their family, and I can't wait for you all to meet them. have with me today my big sister Lauren and my eldest niece Megan. Tell us a little bit about yourselves. So I'm Lauren, I'm Anna's big sister. I was 15 when Anna was born so uh, it was a little bit of a lifestyle change having a a baby (laughs) in the family as well as uh, an older brother and a younger brother at that time. Um, But you know I don't think the, the age difference actually means anything when you get older and you're in adulthood. I don't know whether Anna will agree with that or not. Certainly, you know, now we just feel like two adults together. They're really lovely. I'm a teacher. I'm actually a deputy head teacher of a school for young people with social, emotional and mental health needs. And all of them have challenging behaviour. And most of them have experienced exclusion from other, from mainstream settings and, and some from other special schools as well. So that keeps me quite busy. And I'm the mum of two teenagers. I've got a 19-year-old son who's just gone back to uni today, finally. And the lovely Megan, who's sat here next to me now. Uh, So I'm Megan and I'm 15. So I've just started year 11, getting ready for GCSEs. And what are you doing your GCSEs in? Like, what options have you picked? So I've chosen French, History and Digital Art and RS as well. Fab. So how has 2020 treated you both? For me, I think it's been quite stressful with the pandemic, not knowing what's going on with our exams and not being able to see my friends for a long time. Mm -hmm. You did a big chunk of your year 10 studying from home. What was that like? Uh, Well, it was okay. Like I could get on with it on my own quite well, but we didn't really get much support from teachers or anything. And it was quite hard to like focus a lot of the time. Yeah. I've always found that self-directed study. My brain has 52 things it'd rather do than sit down and do homework. Yeah. And what about you, Lauren? How's your year been? Well, I think I can safely say it's the strangest year I've ever known, you know, both personally and in a a work-related context. You know, lockdown itself was quite strange because obviously being a teacher, although I was doing some of my teaching and some of, you know, the running of a school from home, 
I was also, with all of our children having education, health and care plans, I was also required to go into school quite a lot and to physically teach the students who were on site at the time. So, you know, some of that felt a little bit brave new world stepping out when the roads were quiet and, you know, the world just felt very strange and quite scary and quite alienating at times. I think as a parent, it's been an odd year as well. When the pandemic started, my oldest child was still at university in halls of residence, and that was causing us quite some anxiety around how safe he would be in, in a building with multiple occupancy and, you know, people living at very close quarters. But then, you know, after having both of them at home as well, just worrying about, you know, are they likely to catch it? What's happening to their education? What's happening to them socially? Are they becoming isolated? I've got an elderly mother-in-law and our parents are not elderly, but they're in one of the more vulnerable groups. So that's an added thing to think about isn't it so it's been a really strange time and I think it's affected me mentally at times as well as emotionally and and physically as well yeah I think there's all those impacts aren't there like you say there's the physical just how draining it is there's all the worry all the things to think about and for me as well I found that rapid shift in having to suddenly work in different ways so to switch everything to online for me took quite a big adjustment just in terms of thinking power to get that all going and I imagine that switch to online teaching was quite weird at the start as well. It was it was really strange actually because it didn't feel like we had very much notice it felt like about I think it was a week but it actually felt like much less time because we didn't do anything virtually. We didn't have a virtual platform. You know, we don't have very many students at the school, which is good. We've only got 28 students, but we were having to think about, do they have IT capabilities at home? You know, do they have a functioning broadband and Wi-Fi capability? Are they going to be working off their phones or do we have to provide paper packs? And then the platform that we went for, nobody had ever used before. So, you know, we had a matter of days to get everybody with an email address that could access the platform we wanted to use with conversations with the staff about were we going to be teaching live via a video link or were we going to use something like the the remote classroom facilities that people can log into and, and log out of or was it going to be a mixture of both so it was a really steep learning curve and you know there were a couple of bumps along the way which were quite difficult to navigate. I mean, not impossible to navigate, but, you know, they took a lot of extra time and a lot of extra planning from the things we would normally be doing to run a school. Yeah. As a pupil of a different school, Meg, did you find that it was the same at your end of getting used to lots of different things? Uh, Yeah, I think so. So we already had an online platform that we'd used for homework. We all knew how to work that, but doing the lessons on your own and trying to like, work the PowerPoints and like, understand what they were asking you to do, I think was quite hard. Yeah, a lot of the children that I work with have said being in the virtual classroom just felt completely weird because a big part of being at school is having other people around you. How did that affect you? Well, I still spoke to them quite a lot. But it was really hard not being able to see them because we obviously used to see each other every single day. And I miss them a lot. So were there things you did that helped with that? Well, we texted each other every day and just tried to plan stuff that we were going to do after the pandemic was over and when we could see each other again. So like days out in the summer, we did together. Things to look forward to then. Yeah. Oh, that's a 
a really good idea. I like that. Meg's not very keen on the medium of Zoom either. (laughs) (laughs) She wasn't very keen on the idea, even if it was for the social contact. But equally, I think had her school decided to go down the live lesson route, which they didn't, you would have found that quite tricky, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would have hated it. She wouldn't even do her dance lessons over Zoom. You know, it was something that was causing her quite considerable anxiety that she might be made to appear on a screen and, you know, and would feel on the spot and quite vulnerable to somebody seeing a a little bit of her life that they wouldn't normally see. Yeah, I definitely have a love-hate relationship with Zoom. Sometimes I think it's really great and other times, like you say, just that being visible and having to think of what is my face doing right now and what is my background like. And quite often I've had that I'll be in the middle of saying something on Zoom and the people I'm with will start laughing and I'm like, what is happening here and one of the cats will be doing something ridiculous behind <laughs> me and I have that moment of going oh my god <laughs> like, goose <laughs> it happens quite regularly I have taught yeah. several children how to say the word cat from goose appearing on screen <laughs> as well though so you know Fine. swings and roundabouts Actually, that reminds me, um, one of the things that I had to do when uh, during lockdown was we were still interviewing for a couple of vacancies that we had at work. And we were doing some learning support worker interviews one day. And I said to all the kids, right, you know, I'm interviewing this afternoon. I must have the dining room. And it doesn't mean you can't come in because I'll have my headset on. You won't be able to hear anything. But just be aware that I won't be able to have a conversation with you because my video will be on or you won't be able to come into shot or answer questions. And we were interviewing one of our last candidates and uh, Ben was cooking tea that day. And as I was very aware it was my question and he was looming and um, what he didn't realize was I was interviewing at the time and he was looking for a cookery book which was located on the bookcase behind me and you know peering into shot around the corner was my son's face while I'm in the middle of what should be a really professional process and that you know that all went out the window because zoom isn't quite so forgiving is it when things go wrong that was quite amusing Oh, that is funny. I I hope he made a good tea after that. He did. He always makes a good tea. So, uh, yeah, that's a saving grace. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the reasons that I wanted to bring you on is I think a lot of mums feel really confident with either the early childhood years or the teenage years. Because I know, Lauren, we've talked in the past about the teenage years, you feel like that's your parenting niche. What do you like about being a mum to teenagers? It's really, really interesting because... You know, when I was thinking about becoming a teacher, I I always thought I would go down the subject route and teach teenagers at a secondary school. And I did some work experience for a summer job teaching Spanish teenagers and hated every single second of the month that I did it for. Didn't really even do it for very long. And that always gave me the impression that I should be a primary teacher, which is, you know, what I did my training in. Um, It's where I had the majority of my career for 20 plus years. So I always thought, I wasn't very good with teenagers. I always thought I was a bit prim and played by the rules and didn't really understand them. And it's a real revelation to me that I've enjoyed the teenage years of being a parent so much. And I think it's a combination of lots of things. So 
firstly, they're funny. You know, they're absolutely hilarious. They're eccentric. They're weird, you know. And I love all of that. I love kind of watching them and trying to work out what their brains are doing right at this moment, you know, when they're saying the funny thing or they can't work out the basic function to doing something because they're in that elastic brain stage because their bodies are growing so fast and their brain hasn't quite caught up. And then their brain will do a little bit of a leap of development and they're suddenly vastly more mature than they were a couple of weeks ago. So I love watching all of that taking place. And I love seeing the adults who they're going to be emerging. You know, you get a flash very occasionally of what the 30-year-old Megan is going to be like or the 50-year-old Megan. And then she'll go right back to the 15-year-old Megan again in some of her other thoughts and behaviours. And I love that. So I'm getting a glimpse of the future, but the future isn't here yet. It hasn't quite happened. And I think as well, for me as a person, as a parent, teenagers are actually easier than the early baby years or, you know, that middle childhood phase is I'm not so tired because I'm not getting up in the middle of the night. I'm, I'm not feeling that they're depending on me quite so much. They can do basic functions of toileting and feeding themselves. They can go out and catch I'm glad a to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they can go into town, you know, but I found that really hard. Those early years, I found being on call all the time or what felt like all of the time, I'm sure it wasn't actually, but I found it really, really draining. It felt like at times there was nothing of me left because I was giving so much of it to the small people in my life. I think being a primary school teacher didn't help. And it's one of the reasons that I actually stopped teaching when Megan was about three and I went into a more advisory role with a local authority for about nine years or so, because I felt that other people's children were getting the best of me during the working day. And all I had left over for my own family at the end of the day was the dregs. So I'm in a different place now. I've gone back into full-time teaching at a special school now. And, you know, I feel like I'm a different person trying to do it now. And they're different people as well trying to do it now. So the best of me doesn't seem to have been taken out of me during the working day. I've still got lots of it left for them in the evenings. Yeah, it's, it's lots of things really, but mostly I think it is that I just love spending time with them as people and enjoying the conversations you can have about politics or film or TV or world events, famous people, whatever it might be. Yeah, and I don't know if you remember, Lauren, one of my favourite memories of not just your two, but all of my nephews and nieces is at the family Christmas meetup a couple of years ago when we had it at that farm and there was an adult's table and a kid's table. On the adult's table there was lots of conversations about relatives and cousins that were doing this, that and the other. And the kids were having a really in-depth discussion about politics and net neutrality and all this. And I remember kind of zoning out of the adult table because I was like, I want to hear what these guys are talking about. Like... This is amazing. And I think you and I actually went and sat at the kids' table and were just like, right, guys, like, educate us. What's important? Yeah. And they're fascinating, aren't they? I mean, obviously, I'm biased. I'm, you know, I find my own children amazing and wonderfully fascinating. But actually, you know, the nephews and our baby niece now, they're interesting people in their own right as well. And it is really lovely spending time with them and getting to know them. And just having that shared history or that shared humor or the family in-jokes with the next generation of young people. Yeah, definitely. So Meg, my question for you then is, what's it like being a teenager at the moment? Well, 
I quite like the whole social media aspect because I think it's a good way to like educate yourself on the world mm-hmm. but it can be quite bad on social media because there's a lot of negativity there and like you see people putting themselves down quite a lot and I think it can affect how you see yourself. So when you say the education what kind of things have you learned about through social media? So like the Black Lives Matter protest I heard a lot about that and I was able to educate myself on black lives and the struggles they've had and then like I think I've learned a lot about feminism through Instagram and things like that. And I think that for me was learning that I didn't really do until my like mid to late 20s because it wasn't visible to me. Like I think particularly because I grew up in the Midlands in my teenage years, my school had very, very few people of colour and we were all of a very similar social class as well. And I just wasn't aware of stuff like the need for feminism or the difficulties that black and minoritized people were facing because it wasn't in my bubble. So I really like how it's opened up a lot of these discussions when you're much younger. Yeah, I think it's a lot easier to access now and then I can like talk to people my age about it as well as adults. Yeah. And then in terms of the self-image stuff, has that affected you or have you managed to stay quite confident in yourself? I think it's definitely affected me. And is there anything that you found that when it is affecting you, like what helps? I think talking to my friends helps because we all like bring each other up quite a lot and we tell each other what's good about like personalities and things like that. Oh, it's lush having a group of friends that you can do that with who've got your back. Yeah. This is my next question. It's another one for you, Maggie. Your mum said what she enjoys about being a mum, but what kind of things do you think make a good mum? I think to a certain extent being like a friend because I think it means you get along better and then like letting me express myself how I want to. You teach me a lot about the world as well, I think. You give me like different interpretations of things. It's really tricky because I'm quite a political person, not sort of strictly speaking in, in the world of politics, but I see that politics is very related to how you live your life and, you know, your integrity and the kind of person you want to be. So we do have quite a lot of conversations, don't we, around the yeah. dinner table or of an evening about the world and maybe fit into that and what kind of um, giving back you do to society. And I'm very aware that I might have undue influence sometimes. So I've always tried to say to the kids, look, just because I believe this, it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, feel free to develop your own ideas and thoughts and and to discuss them with me. But I think I probably have influenced them because they're both quite radical and quite, I mean, opinionated sounds like a strong word, doesn't it? Sounds like a negative word. I don't think it is. They've got opinions and they're not afraid to voice them. And I really think that's a strength, you know, Mm -hmm. for both of them in the future. And it's something that I'm really proud of Megan for because she's so passionate about the things that do matter to her and that she's decided for herself are important in her own life. But I do worry sometimes, you know, where's that line between influencing your kids too much and allowing them to develop their own self-identity around certain issues. And it's interesting, like a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, I was talking to Chantal about reclaiming the word stubborn. I feel the same about opinionated. Give me opinionated teenagers any day of the week because (laughs) it's like you say, Megan, you do have that self-expression. Like it's the time when you're learning how to do all that. I'm just thinking of when you were staying at ours last summer and you had that really long conversation with Mel where Mel came down and I was like, oh, what did you talk about? And she was like, everything. (laughs) we've covered 
everything <laughs> from how stupid boys are all the way through to careers but I love that about you that you do have your views and you put them forward and it's funny as well that you should mention boys in in that because one of the things that I think she gets quite a lot of criticism from boys at school sometimes because she's opinionated and actually you know with some 15 year old girls that might make them think oh well I better shut up then because you know people might not like me actually what it's done with Megan which I'm really proud of her for is she's thought about it and she said well this is me this is important to me this is what I believe in and actually if you're criticizing me for those beliefs or you know if you haven't done the thinking that's required around these beliefs why why would I waste my time on worrying about what you think of me and I love that about her you talked about self-image you know we can talk about self-confidence she would probably tell you that she isn't very self-confident but I think it takes a lot of courage actually say to somebody this is important you need to listen to this you need to form your own opinion and respect mine oh I love it (laughs) (laughs) and do you see that with your friends as well Meg do they have that same resilience or is that something you've learned from your mum or I think me and my friends all like help each other to do that sort of thing. We kind of, we've kind of like sort of grown up together in our beliefs and how we want to like teach people about it, which is quite nice. Yeah. Like I see it with them. They they have quite similar beliefs to me and they are passionate about them as well. Fab. So shifting the topic slightly, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately is role models on a a global level and on a really personal level. So if we start with famous people and people in the public eye, who do you both look up to? It's, do you know, this is a really difficult question for me because I've got loads and loads of people I admire, but I'm not entirely sure that I would say that I have heroes or role models. I don't know, maybe it's my understanding of what the words mean. But I really look up to strong, honest, passionate, influential women, such as Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for example, has done so much for women's rights. Sadly, she passed quite recently, and I think it's a great loss to the world. But she is somebody that I've been aware of for a couple of years now and have just been so in awe of what she achieved through her lifetime for the advancement of women and was such a powerful, influential figure in American life. But I do think, you know, there are plenty of British women who also look up to her as well. And in the same vein, people like Michelle Obama and Jacinda Ardern, who show us how you can be a role model to others or you can lead a country with honesty and integrity. Mm-hmm. You can be challenging and you don't need to lose your femininity you know these are the kind of people that I admire if you ask me if they're role models they probably are if they're heroes I don't know I don't know quite what the distinction is it's interesting isn't it sometimes when you call someone a hero you then expect them to be a perfect person Mm. and the older I get the more I learn that there actually aren't any perfect people what we have is imperfect people trying to do what they think is right. Yeah, exactly that. With all those examples that you have just named of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Michelle Obama and Jacinta Ardem, I'm fairly sure when they were teenagers, people were out there saying, oh, they're very opinionated. Oh, I'm sure they were. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But look at the world now. Look at what they've achieved, you know. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. 
So what about you, Meg? Who do you look up to? I agree with you. I don't think I've got any specific ones, but I do look up to the people who stand up for what they believe in. Just have good views on the world and things like that. Yeah, I don't think I have any specific ones. It's about not being afraid to have a voice, isn't it, I think? Yeah. You know, so so somebody like Greta Thunberg, for example, you know, young as she is, she's not afraid to have a voice and to say what her concerns about the world are and to speak to powerful political leaders about the environment and about the, the future of the globe. And, you know, to actually ignore the abuse as well that she gets online or in person from a lot of people who ought to know better. <laughs> she's got that internal integrity and strength mm. that allows her to continue even in the face of some really strong opposition yeah i don't know if you saw there was a speech by alexandria ocasio cortez a couple of weeks ago where she called out a lot of the abuse that she's mm. received from other politicians and yet it is that integrity is such an important value to me that i really love seeing that there's not just one or two women out there in the world that we can look up to now there is this raft of people who are stepping into their power having a voice and yeah I think it's a really good time in terms of seeing that female leadership rising at last Mm, yeah it really is and what about on a personal level are there people closer to you who have that same influence on you Mm. Again, you know, it's such a difficult question because I know some amazing women. I've worked with some amazing women. We've got family members who were really strong, passionate, opinionated (laughs) women (laughs) who I think have definitely influenced me in my life. I mean, I think of our two grandmothers Mm -hmm. and, and my godmother, Auntie Nance, as well. You know, really courageous women for their time, hardworking loving you know there's there's so many qualities that i think i've picked up over the years from the people who were important to me growing up and the women that i've worked alongside it would be so hard to just pick out one of those individuals because i think i take a little piece away from everybody i meet who empowers me or impresses me or who helps me to discover my own strength and my own skills i'm probably a little bit of a mix of all of those amazing women that I've had the privilege of knowing throughout my life. That's a really lovely way of looking at it, taking a piece of them with you. And I definitely do, you know, sometimes I'll do something or I'll say something and I'll think, oh, there's grandma. Or, (laughs) you know, I look in the mirror or I'll say something in a certain way and there's mom. (laughs) You know, it's uh, maybe that's just getting older. I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, I definitely do it too. Yeah. (laughs) And unfortunately, Snapchat with the filters that they have on there quite often make me look like other family members as well. I've got a wonderful (laughs) one where I'm the spitting image of our granny and had a moment of, oh. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, isn't it? The first time it happens. You kind of get used to it after a while. And, you know, that's the lovely thing about Meg as well. When, When Meg was very, very tiny, I used to find it really hard when people said to me, who's she like? Because she was like everyone, you know, I could see bits of almost everyone in the family, either in her looks or her personality or the things that she said or, you know, the way that she said things. And she really is a mixture of all of those wonderful women who have brought us up or who've been present in our lives. That's really lovely for me to see as a parent and as a sister and as a daughter and a cousin, you know, as well. Yeah. 
Do you notice that, Megan? What's it like growing up with lots and lots of female role models around you? I really like it because I think you've all got something different to teach me about the world and like that I have something in common with everyone in our family and I can just talk to you all about anything really. Yeah and I think that's lovely like thinking back to when I was your age I was very convinced that the person that I needed to turn into was your mum Lauren. I was convinced that if I could just work out how to be you then I'd have cracked it. And actually, for me, there's been this really big process of unlearning that I'd have to be like one other person that I admire, that actually I can take bits that work for me from all the people around me and other bits that have been role modelled to me that I can go, actually, that doesn't work for me, that doesn't suit me. And do you know that is so important? You know, I see this at work all of the time because obviously in my line of work, we're in some really difficult, challenging situations quite a lot of the time. And whenever a new member of staff joins us, it's likely to be the first time they've ever worked in such a challenging, stressful environment of this type. I'm sure they've worked in other challenging environments. And a key part of our training, our induction training around supporting students with their social, emotional, mental health needs is learn from others, but don't try and be others. Because you can't wear somebody else's costume and be authentic and naturally be able to do the job that you need to do with these kids. You can have a bit of what somebody does well that you think that you'd be able to bring into your own practice and a bit from somebody else. But if you're living a life of trying to be just one other person because you admire them or because they do it well, you're almost setting yourself up for failure. And I think what you're describing, Anna, is although it's not in that work environment, it's something very similar. If you'd ever said that to me, I would say, no, don't do it. You know, take this bit of me that you think might work for you, but develop it and apply it in your own way and take a little bit from somebody else as well. I really do think that's important in terms of authenticity, but also feeling like your personality fits you. Because you have to feel comfortable in your own skin, don't you? You can't feel like you're wearing somebody else's clothes. Yeah, and I think it was the impact that trying to do that had on my mental health as well. Mm. Because I don't necessarily think that I was trying to actually be you in all your complicated and wonderful ways. I think I was trying to be what I thought you were. (laughs) And that, for me, is something I've spent a lot of time talking about this week, actually, of... We have these views of how other people are and how they react and how they think. But because it's all coming through that filter of our experiences and our thinking patterns and our beliefs, we're not actually getting what they're thinking unless we communicate with them. What we're getting is what we project they're thinking or what we project they're doing. And actually, it's very rare that we have that really accurate perspective on what's going on in other people's heads. It's all kind of guesswork. Yeah. When we were thinking about doing this podcast and I knew that it was around my relationship with Megan and shaping each other's lives, one of the things that I was thinking and I've thought for a long time is around sort of courage. So I know that Megan would say, for example, that she's not as brave as I am because she said it to me about so many different situations. Actually, what Meg doesn't understand is in my own head, I'm not brave and I've never been brave. And I have to make myself do things which frighten me 
because I know that I will learn from it or become a stronger person as a result of it. And sometimes I just wish I could say to me, you're so much braver than me. You're so much stronger because you're already halfway there. And I was nowhere near being halfway there when I was your age. Mm -hmm. So it is really funny, isn't it, about our perceptions of people. And I think you're right. You might think you know what somebody else is because of how they present to you on the outside, but you can't climb into their head. You can't see their insecurities. You can't hear their thoughts or their self-doubt or their questions. So you're shaping your life on something which is almost a fiction, something, you know, that's not quite honest. And is that important to you then, Meg? Like, is being brave something you see that's really important? Definitely, yeah. I think that is something I definitely struggle with, getting the courage to do things that people might not agree with. Yeah, that's such a good point that sometimes it's not about doing the thing, it's about what other people think about you doing the thing as well. I totally get you on that one. So to round it kind of back up again, I'm going to ask each of you a similar question. Is there anything that if you could talk to other teenage girls out there, what would you want to say to them? I'd want to know about how the media has affected them, see if it's like the same way it has with me and like Mm -hmm. see if they've learned through it as well. Cool. And what about you, Lauren? What would you want to say to the other mums of teenagers out there? I mean, the teenage years are a very special set of years and a lot of parents approach them with trepidation because, you know, you hear so much, don't you, about arguments, um, about kids going off the rails, about them not listening to their parents anymore and so many things that when you're the parent of younger children and it feels like you've got it all in control and maybe you are in control of their lives, feel like it's quite scary and, and you're losing control as a parent. But really, I would say look at it as an opportunity to help guide and support your young people into a new phase of their life and a phase that will eventually take them to adulthood and approach it with an open mind about how much you'll get from it as a parent because they are so funny and loving and thoughtful one minute. And sure, you do get the door slamming and the arguments and the irascible brains that can't quite accept, you know, what you want them to accept from time to time. But it's a bit like thunderstorms, that within five minutes, you know, they'll change again. They'll be back to that loving, eccentric, odd little person that just makes you howl with laughter and can also make you rage. <laughs> but it's not a scary place to be. It's a place full of so much fun and so much opportunity. Please don't dread it because it's a really lovely time to spend with your kids before they step out into that big wide world by themselves. the word authenticity in the recording and that struck me as something we probably need to talk about every now and again the people I coach will say to me oh this strategy just doesn't feel like me and as the whole point of my coaching is to support people to be their true selves it's always one of those take note moments for me so if you're trying something and it doesn't feel true to you here are my top tips first we need to work out whether it's a difference in perception As Lauren so beautifully put, sometimes we don't see the qualities in ourselves that others do. So look for some evidence to support your belief, but also look for some evidence on the flip side as well. Next, it's helpful to work out whether you even want it to be something you adopt. 
Is that motivation to change coming from within you or are you feeling a little pressured by society, by the people around you? When we're making personal growth, we should always check in with our values just to make sure we're growing in the right direction. And just because the strategy's good doesn't mean it has to be the one for you. And last, try and imagine a version of the scenario that would feel more you. Is it in the delivery, the content? Does it need a tweak to feel more comfortable? It's always important to have a think about how you want to behave in that situation. So with these three steps, you can gain insight into those moments where you don't feel authentic and find some changes that suit you. And if all else fails, come find me and we'll chat it through together. Next week, we'll be talking to Yoni Ejo, a registered social worker and adoption coach who has personal experience of the system from both sides. Yoni is a passionate advocate of adoption as a solution when children can't remain with their birth parents, but she also knows that adopters often don't get the full range of preparation that they need. As an adopted person herself, she grew up in a transracial adoption and has adopted two now teenage girls with her partner. Her insights into adoption are just phenomenal and I can't wait to share her wisdom with you. See you next week. Navigating the Storm is hosted by Anna Knight and produced by Anna Knight and Mo Robinson. <laughs>